Welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast that dives deep into important topics and fosters understanding by exploring captivating interviews with diverse guests, where we discuss how their unique experiences have shaped them into the individuals they are today. This podcast is committed to having honest and thought-provoking conversations to arouse curiosity and convey essential messages of empathy, inclusion, and diversity, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am honored to welcome Emily Abrams. Emily is a globally renowned expert in immigration and global mobility, recognized with awards for her exceptional work in managing complex immigration and international assignment programs. In fact, in 2021, while working at WWE, she received the FEM, America's Expatriate Management and Mobility Award for Outstanding Corporate Agility and Crisis Management. However, what truly inspires me about Emily is her resilience. Despite her impressive achievements, she faced a breast cancer diagnosis in her late 30s, leading to a medically induced menopause and ultimately a hysterectomy. Throughout this challenging journey, Emily continued to excel at work, winning awards, all while being a dedicated mother of two young children and a supportive wife during the pandemic. Breast Cancer Awareness Month is deeply personal experience for so many. Some celebrate by wearing pink, others choose to observe quietly, and some may feel a range of emotions. It's crucial to remember that breast cancer impacts one in eight women in the United States each year and 2.3 million women worldwide. Each woman's journey is unique to her, and I am privileged to be sharing Emily's story on For Your Listening Pleasure. I hope you find this episode both enlightening and empowering. Enjoy. Emily, welcome to the For Your Listening Pleasure podcast. Before we kind of dive into this episode, I want to do a quick shout out to Christine Lawrence, a former podcast guest who was so kind in introducing us. So I always like to give those shout out to those podcast guests. Yeah, she's amazing. (laughs) She's amazing. And listeners, definitely check out her episode. But you guys know each other because you both work at WWE. And you have a really unique role, a role that I didn't even know honestly existed. And you are considered one of the top 250 most admired global mobility professionals. Can you describe what a global mobility specialist is or professional? Oh, of course. Yeah. So um, global mobility is an area that is often tied to human resources and sometimes sort of ties into talent management. And it's essentially um, the movement of talent from a home country to a host country where they are on assignment or they are moving for a permanent role. And there are many facets to that journey, including things like relocation and immigration and family support services and everything that goes into ensuring that the the role and the um the development of that person is uh, a great fit for the company and for them it's a very fascinating fascinating industry fascinating role i love it i've been doing it for over 15 years now and yeah, I'm a I, I'm a bit of a global mobility and immigration geek. <laughs> no, how did you get into that? Because it's not like a job you hear about that often. Yeah, no, I actually had started out in a human resources generalist role. 
Um, and it was with a company that had a pretty significant international population um, and part of an operating company that was growing very rapidly and um, building out a, a global mobility program. And so I kind of... It, a lot of people within global mobility talk about how it sort of falls into their lap and that's sort of what happened with me. It sort of fell into my lap and I was a little resistant at first because I had my own issues um, being a, a, an expat, an immigrant. I had a, a pretty rough go of it um, when I was uh, getting my uh, green card and I vowed I was never going to touch immigration again. <laughs> and then it became sort of a core part of my job. And I was sort of like, well, you know, I do have some 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 personal experience here. I, you know, I know I know where the pain points are. I know how to navigate it. And so it actually ended up being a blessing. Um, and now I'm all in. <laughs> What I learned actually about WWE is that during the pandemic, they were still having live shows and continuously kept it going, meaning that there was still talent kind of having to either come into the States or stay in the States or coming from other areas. And I can only imagine how crazy that time was. What were like some of the biggest pain points for your role there? Because obviously everyone was on lockdown you weren't able to come from one country to another that easily if at all yeah it was a very very challenging time um obviously the um the the travel bans were significantly uh they, they significantly impacted our business at the point that they were in effect we really didn't have much lead time where you know we were told like okay you know I think it was in a matter of 24 hours or so that you know they were going to stop allowing people to travel and so you know we were lucky enough to kind of you know get a lot of people on uh flights at the last minute to kind of get them back into the U.S. but there were some people who you know didn't or they you know the, the, some 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 folks you know to uh, talent are independent contractors and so in some cases decided to sort of take themselves off back to their home country and you know discovered that they got stuck um you know en route and you know it was it, 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 it was in in some cases a little stressful we were able to manage to get the majority of our talent where they needed to be and those that you know were in other countries um you know, for the most part, they were in countries where they were able to um, continue uh, working. Uh, we at the time had a uh, uh, NXT UK. So those that had been stuck in the UK were actually able to continue um, working in the UK. And then, um, you know, there were some, uh, I don't want to say workarounds because, you know, we always do everything um, in a very compliant manner, but there were ways that we could um, navigate getting people um, back into the US. And, you know, it, it was, it was, it was difficult from the perspective that the um, US immigration system was not very lenient in the way that other, other countries were. 
So it required a lot of refiling and adjusting um, petitions in order to maintain valid visa status for those that had been, um, were going to go to a visa appointment abroad that no longer could. It was a bit of a, a, a bit of a puzzle and a lot of sort of quick pivoting and <laughs> creative uh, strategy. And I just want to shout you out because you ended up winning the Global Mobility Professional of the Year Award. I actually, I was nominated, nominated. for the Global Mobility Professional of the Year Award for 2023. I actually won a different award for outstanding, um, what was it, crisis management and agility, something along those lines. So that was for the efforts in 2020. To 2021. So that's a big deal. And just given what you were just speaking about, having to kind of every case was different and that agility and having to go with the flow, but making sure that either the talent is taken care of, the company's taken care of, as well as you as a mom and a wife, and you were making sure everyone at home was also taken care of. So you were caring a lot. And when we first spoke, I was really intrigued, obviously, by your role because I had never heard of it. And then at the end of our prep call, I said to you, is there anything you really want me to touch on? And you said, yeah, I'm happy to talk about my job, but I would rather talk about like the health experiences and what I've gone through as a young mother and female. And so I don't want to say too much. I'm going to let you kind of share your story because I thought it was so impactful when you shared it with me a few months ago. So if you wouldn't mind kind of walking us through what happened. Of course. Um, yeah. So in October of 2018, I went for a routine mammogram. I had been getting them since I was 37. So at the time I was 39, I'd been getting them from around the age of 37 um, because there had been a history of breast cancer in my family and, you know, it was my usual sort of check it off the list. <laughs> I need to make sure that I'm like taking care of myself here. And um, I went for my mammogram. Everything sort of was normal. Um, I actually had received sort of the standard letter that you get in the mail that's like everything was normal. Congratulations kind of thing. And then my um, OBGYN at the time had called and she's like, you know, the, 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 the scans aren't as clear as I would like. I'd like to just, you know, have them do a sonogram to check. And, you know, the sonogram did show a tumor and they were like, you know, we need to biopsy this. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, a little nervous, but sort of feeling, feeling fairly positive. And I got results that I actually had cancer, which at 39, I was not expecting. Um, and it was it was a a big blow at the time. I had two little kids. Um, you know, I was you know, working full time in a demanding job. And I was, I, I guess I just was sort of like floored a little bit. I was just like, wow, you know, like you never expect it to happen to you. I think that's sort of like the, the takeaway when, you know, you're kind of chugging along and then you get delivered sort of life-changing news. 
you know, so I kind of went into a mode of being very deliberate about how I wanted to manage this. I knew that I could, it, it could be susceptible to kind of going down a rabbit hole of negativity and panic and worry. And so I had to, you know, very actively not do that and sort of essentially take control of my own journey, my and 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 my narrative. And it it taught me to be my best advocate, not only in my health, but kind of in many other things in life. I think I think when faced with adversity, it forces you to kind of slow down and really boil down the things that are in your life and 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 focus on the stuff that is most important and kind of try to drown out the noise of the stuff that doesn't matter as much and I think as working women and as moms it can be very easy to get overwhelmed with all the things and so that diagnosis really kind of forced me both from a health perspective and from just like a personal and professional perspective to really focus on what was important to me. So you get that call right after and the biopsy. And I've spoken to other women who have been diagnosed at a really young age. It's a shock. Even if you have family history, you still can't believe you've done all the things to try to prevent it. You get the mammograms early, all of that, but you're handed this diagnosis. And then from my understanding, a lot of times doctors are like, all right, here's a list of things to do. And you're trying to just digest what you've been told. What advice would you give someone who gets that phone call? What are like the first few things that you wish someone would have told you? Or is it more finding the right kind of doctor that understands you and advocates for you? Or is it relying on friends? Or how do you go about moving forward and protecting and making sure you're getting the support you need? I think it's a combination of things. I think when dealing with doctors and and health insurance and all of the components that go into managing your care it's important to it's important to be clear about what it is that you want and being an advocate for yourself and also i always recommend getting a second opinion right i mean there will be certain cases where people are like I'm I'm 100% confident in my doctor I'm ready to move forward um, I'm not discounting that at all but I do think it's always good to have some even if it's the exact same um, recommendations or what have you at least you know then you know um, you know so I definitely think a second opinion is always worthwhile um, what I remember is feeling very frustrated when I was talking to um, health insurance people 
Um, I don't think they're necessarily as empathetic to somebody who has been newly diagnosed. And so, you know, I feel like I had to kind of like fight a little harder and also kind of build up the resilience in myself not to kind of, kind of, I don't want to say break down, but like I was in a, like a pretty fragile and vulnerable spot and having to kind of reiterate the same set of facts and history over and over to different specialists was very draining. Um, you know, so I think having the support of family is very important. I don't think, you know, there's necessarily somebody who can step in and do those things for you, but having that support system of family or friends that can just listen and share in the just in how you're feeling um and you know just sort of like be there for you I think it's very difficult when you're in in the moment you're not necessarily sure of what help other people can provide which I think is sometimes a bit challenging not only for the patient but for loved ones as well because inevitably there are people like what can I do to help what can I do to help and you're just kind of like I don't know like I just don't know um and then it can feel a little weird if you're not used to being that person that seeks help from other people and I think often as women you know we're used to sort of doing everything ourselves um you know getting comfortable with asking for help or letting others know how they can support you is is a good skill to gain if it's not something that somebody you know regularly does um and you'll quickly weed out those that <laughs> that mean it and those that don't um but yeah having the support of family friends um you know to the extent that like work um colleagues and you know bosses can sort of you know be understanding you know I know that not everybody you know has that kind of um setup with their work but hopefully in most cases bosses and team members will be you know supportive and understanding and you know allow people you know the the space that they need to to deal with their diagnosis and their treatment after your diagnosis what was like the next step did you have to have surgery I know that you went into chemical menopause and I'm I would love to discuss that in a little bit because that's something that a lot of women who do have that experience don't talk about for whatever reason, I, I know there's a lot to it, but what were those steps that you had to go through to get healthy again? Yeah, it was, um, to answer the first part of your question, the, um, the next steps were, you know, I, I was given choices, which was interesting to me because I wasn't expecting to get choices. I kind of expected to be told like, this is your treatment plan. And we as experts think you should do X, Y, Z. And it it wasn't like that. You know, they were like, you could 
choose to have a lumpectomy. You could have a single mastectomy. You could have a double mastectomy. And they kind of like went through all of those, um, those treatment options and sort of what the side effects would be and what the sort of overall long-term um, chances of, you know, having a recurrence and things like that would be. And so, you know, I was sort of a little taken aback because I'm like, oh shoot, I have to make this decision. <laughs> like in some ways it would be easier if someone was just like, look, listen, this is just what you have to do. But in hindsight, I understand. And I, you know, I do kind of appreciate that, you know, I, I did have, more of a say in that, um, you know, so based on my pathology, because this is like another thing that I think sort of at large people kind of maybe have more of a narrow understanding of what breast cancer means. There are many, many, many different types of breast cancer. There are many, many, many different types of treatments. And so one person's breast cancer and treatment could vary very differently to another's. And so I think sometimes when I was talking to friends or, you know, people about it, a lot of times people like to kind of place what they've understood from another um, person's experience and kind of look at it like a blanket kind of like oh this is what breast cancer is like and this is what the treatment is like and based on my friend's experience you can expect xyz and it's not like that at all even when people have essentially a very similar diagnosis their treatment plans can be very different to each other so I opted to have a lumpectomy based on sort of the the statistics around the pathology of my tumor um, I had lymph nodes removed because they wanted to just verify if cancer had spread. Um, thankfully, my margins were clear. My lymph nodes were clear, um, which meant that moving forward, they didn't have to consider sort of either more surgery or a more drastic approach. And so like to me, logically, I was like, let me start small. If we need to you know, do something a little more drastic, we can kind of consider that at the next step. Um, from that pathology, they then kind of do some more tests to determine whether, um, whether actually I should step back a bit because we had, um, the option also to do genetic testing. So before I actually had the lumpectomy, I had genetic testing to, um, determine whether I had the BRCA, I think I think I said it correctly, BRCA gene. Um, where you have a far higher chance of um, having um, other, I think it's other cancers or um, uh, the, the chances for- uh, Reoccurrence. Yes. So I did not have the gene, which was, you know, did actually sort of play into what my decision-making was going to be for the, um, for the surgery. Um, and then- with the pathology, they then test again to determine what's called an oncotype score. And that was um, something where if your oncotype score is under 18, typically they don't suggest chemo. If it's over 25, it's pretty much a given that you're going to have chemo. And then sort of like the 19 to 24 ranges, that's sort of limbo area where I was at 19. And I... 
sort of, you know, again, looked at a lot of um, medical journal statistics and determined that, you know, chemo was not the avenue that I wanted to go down at this stage. And so I ended up having 16 rounds of radiation and then um, post radiation, there were two options. One was to go on tamoxifen and the other was to um, go on aromatase inhibitor and have ovary suppressant shots. Um, I do have a history of having um, stroke, a stroke history. Um, I had had a uh, TIA uh, a few years prior. And so I was concerned about tamoxifen um, not being viable for me due to increased chances of blood clotting, increased chances of stroke. So my oncologist was not super thrilled with that idea. She was very much pushing for me to have tamoxifen. So this was sort of one of the examples of where you know I kind of had to stand my ground a little bit and you know I had done research as well and I was like you know I'm confident that tamoxifen does not seem to be the route that I'd like to take I prefer to do the aromatase inhibitor and um, the ovary suppressant shots which you know I started shortly after finishing radiation um, and you know at the time I was told about sort of the the side effects for each and the 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 long-term effects and interestingly you know again a few years out you've got like some more information you've got more hindsight they they they'd noted like okay so this this uh, medication does increase your chances for having osteoporosis but it was followed up with oh but we have like a you know there's a there's a shot that you can have for that that kind of you know helps build your strengthen your bones and things and you know that was kind of the end of that conversation so at the time I was kind of like well look I can either go on the medication where I have like an increased risk of stroke which I already have a history of or I can go down this route and like I may get osteoporosis and so I didn't really kind of think too deeply about it. And in hindsight, I wish that I probably had done a bit more research into sort of like, okay, so what what are the ins and outs of osteoporosis? I didn't have the name of the drug at the time. And I, you know, have since learned that, you know, this this very sort of simple shot that they had explained to me actually you know, it, it does not have desirable side effects. And, you know, of course, when I get to the stage, I have DEXA scans every year because they want to um, they want to measure your bone density to see how these medications are impacting your bone density. And then, you know, of course, they're like, oh, your bone density is de declining. You know, you really should go on this this um, this bone building drug. And, you know, once I sort of had done more research into that, I was, it was a big no. <laughs> like, this is not, this is not something that, you know, I'm willing to entertain at this point. So, you know, again, like I had, I, I was faced with recommendations from the doctor to, you know, come in right away and, you know, let's get started on this, 
on this regime of and, and one that you're supposed to like be on this drug for life and I'm like but it's intended for people who are in the 80s you know like not people in their 40s and I just you know it was something that I I, I was not willing to entertain I'm like I need to I'm confident there are other solutions here. <laughs> Wait, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you had a radical hysterectomy ultimately. So how did. did you go from that to a radical hysterectomy? Did it come back, the cancer? Or at what point did you have to make that decision? Because it's definitely not a decision that anyone makes lightly. You talked through earlier, like you had all these different options and then it led to this at the end. So the, the, the treatment for the aromatase inhibitor, um, and the Lupron, the Lupron shots. So the ovary suppressant shots, you need to have every month. There was a period of time where they were delivered every three months, but there was a shortage during COVID. And so then, I was on like a basically like a 28 day cycle for having to have these ovary suppressant shots. Um, and it just felt very restrictive. It felt very like I, I had to kind of work around my cancer treatment. Um, and the decision to move forward with having a radical hysterectomy was you know, one of, you know, not wanting to be tied to this very like strict schedule, um, you know, that potentially could impact whether I could, you know, go on vacation when I want to, or, you know, go to a conference if I need to, or go on a business trip, like, or just, you know, there's life things that are happening like I didn't want to be tied to this schedule of like okay well every 28 days you need to come in and get this shot um and you know it, again it's like drugs in your body for you don't know how long and you know at the end of the day the hysterectomy is achieving the same result right the the the, the shots are to suppress um production of estrogen from your ovaries if you don't have ovaries you're not producing that estrogen and the um decision to kind of go with the radical hysterectomy really was kind of like if you're gonna go in there and remove my ovaries you might as well go in and remove the other things that could i uh, you know get, get cancer that i'd rather just not have to worry about um you know so the ovary suppressant shots you know, and the aromatase inhibitor sort of pushed me into that chemical menopause that you were talking about. Um, the radical hysterectomy was essentially like a, a surgical menopause. So the 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 difference in those symptoms was not drastic. Um, you know, I think that anybody who is going through a chemical menopause or a a surgical menopause are gonna have significant challenges more than those that are going through it naturally I mean not to dismiss anybody who's going through natural menopause because it sucks all around <laughs> but 
you know, you it, it's a new reality and it's a new sort of set of challenges that you have to sort of manage and overcome. Well, also just with menopause in general, people up until recently never talked about it. I had a podcast guest, Sally Mueller, who created the brand Womanist around menopause products. And in her episode, she talked about, you know, people think menopause is just for a certain number of years and then it's done, but it's for life. And in that moment, I was like, wait, what? I thought like you had two to four years of hell and then it was fine. I didn't realize as a female in my thirties that once you get menopause, it's not like it's a phase, it's forever pretty much. Um, But you know, you're going to get it at some point. But I think what you experienced in other women who either had chemical menopause or went into menopause due to surgical, um, you know, procedures that you don't even talk about it when it's happening naturally, let alone in those two situations, because those are usually end result of a bigger issue like a cancer. So there's so much around all concepts of menopause that people don't talk about, but definitely I think not being forced, but it being recommended that you take it, either do a hysterectomy or be put into medical menopause for your own health takes away an option or takes away that opportunity of you going through it naturally. Like when you're supposed to be, you're in your forties, you shouldn't be going through this in your early forties, let alone, I hope everyone realize you're going through this during the pandemic. You're fighting cancer and dealing with all this in a pandemic when she also, by the way, is like a year later winning awards for her, what she was doing at work. So, I mean, it's like talking to superwoman here, but it's just so interesting when we think about it, because when you and I were talking, I didn't even think that that really happened as much with women who are in their younger 40s. Right. I mean, I think that I sort of when I was thinking about having a hysterectomy, I kind of was a little naive in that. too. I was like, people have hysterectomies all the time. <laughs> like I, you know, my mom had a hysterectomy. I, you know, I've known plenty of people that have hysterectomies and I'm just kind of like, everybody's fine, you know? And I, I think it, you're right. Like it's not talked about enough, just sort of like how impactful having, whether, whether it's chemical menopause or surgical menopause and like, and the surgeries themselves, um, just sort of like how much impact it has on your on your body and sort of you know and and your in your mental well-being um you know what was interesting to me was and again this might just be a function of like this happens with chemical menopause and maybe it doesn't with surgical menopause but when i went into chemical menopause obviously you know you no longer have your period um those hot flashes began like in a snap and I did not know what to expect and they are so disruptive and just sort of having the knowledge of you know they're they're the the fact that all women (laughs) are going to go through this and in a lot of cases, they might be going through this at a time when, you know, 
they're I don't know I don't know whether it's harder or easier if you're going through it naturally at a stage in your life where perhaps there aren't as many demands on you professionally or there aren't as many demands on you as a parent right because I would think if you've had your children you're they're probably you know maybe adults themselves they're self-sufficient they're not young they don't need you right right and so you're sort of your hormone levels you know I had a five-year-old and a 10-year-old at the time and I'm like okay so all of a sudden you know my hormones are all out of whack like estrogen like helps you balance and maintain like your weight um you know it 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 it, it's critical to sort of like your mental health and your physical health and when that kind of crashes all of a sudden that's a lot for like your body to kind of adjust to because with um with natural menopause that's a it's a gradual progression whereas with chemical menopause and with surgical menopause it's like you are like jumping off a cliff straight away so with chemical menopause I I I experienced a lot of joint pain um it was difficult to walk in the mornings more specifically but a lot of times sort of like throughout the day you know if my body had not had sort of been resting or sitting still for a little while like it you feel like an old person you feel like you know you have to like shuffle around and that was like a hard sort of a a hard change to get used to and overcome you know you have the hot flashes your skin goes haywire your hair falls out it's like a real it's a real mixed bag of not a lot of not a lot of fun stuff. Um, thankfully, I did eventually come around to taking some medication to help with the hot flashes. Again, I kind of look at medications very carefully to sort of see will the benefits outweigh the the costs, and so. Um, I am on a medication that significantly helps with the hot flashes. That's not to say that I don't still have them. I am in a constant sort of like battle with the elements around me, but it's definitely a lot better than it used to be for sure. I have to ask, how's your health now? Um, Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. Um, my health at the moment is pretty good, knock on wood, right? So um, every October, November time, I have kind of my annual scans. Um, I actually had, they, they, they flipped my schedule a little bit. And so that I now have like a mammogram mid-year and a, a, a ultrasound in kind of that October, November time. So I'm kind of having some kind of scan every six months. And with my recent, um, with my recent scan, they did see something that they wanted to check out. And so I had a biopsy a few months ago. Um, and thankfully everything was normal, but it certainly kind of heightened 
my anxiety around this. And I think this is another element of sort of breast cancer survivorship that some people may misunderstand or sort of forget, right? So a lot of times there's a lot of focus on when somebody is going through their sort of initial active treatment, right? So you, whether it's surgery or chemotherapy or radiation, once the once people kind of like get through those active pieces of treatment and let's say sort of a one year clear scan, I think this is misunderstanding that you're sort of like done, right? Oh, you're better now, right? Because you your scan was clear and it, it there's almost this perception of like, oh well, you don't need to worry about that anymore, right? On you, you're like you you're you're clear, you're done. Um and I think what people could benefit from sort of like understanding more and kind of checking in with their loved ones and friends and whomever who have had cancer is like it is this ongoing journey that doesn't just end with their initial cancer treatments. So, you know, this biopsy that I had obviously was sort of triggering because there's a 30% chance of anybody who has that initial early stage breast cancer that it will become stage four cancer at some stage in their in their journey. And that's the scary part, right? I, I, we, we hear a lot about, you know, the success rate of um, managing early stage cancers. And that success rate is defined by being alive five years after diagnosis, which to me is not good enough. I'm kind of like your measurement of success. It, it It's not OK that like, you know, you're going to give yourself a pat on the back if I'm still alive at age 44. Right. So what? I am more passionate about is for people to understand that, you know, early detection 1000% is like critical, you know, going for screenings, going for tests, you know, doing your self-examinations and being aware of your own health and not, not to be afraid to manage that um but you know long long term you know i would love to see a focus on the on on research and treatment and care for those who end up with stage 4 cancers whether it's within their initial diagnosis or whether they have a recurrence and it's a stage four metastasized cancer because that's where the funding needs to be and at the moment only two to five percent of funding for all breast cancer goes towards uh, researching metastatic breast cancer well it seems to me that you got diagnosed you had stage one but and that's great that you keep getting your scans but i would feel like it was always a ghost, like the shadow in the room all the time when you are getting your mammograms or every six months, because 
like you said, five years is nothing. I mean, it's just nothing. And half the time, the treatment can take half that time period. So why aren't you looking at 10 years, 15 years, 25 years? And like you said, those who get stage four, I'm so curious how many of those who got stage four had stage one, thought they were fine, kept up with their tests and ended up still getting it. Like, I guess when you look at the cycle timeline, right, of breast cancer, you should look at it holistically versus just in the individual stages because a stage just means like, oh, that's where you are right now. You could end up sadly further down in a different stage like you're talking about. But for someone like you who's so young, every six months you're getting scanned. It's like that ghost comes out of the closet and it's just waiting. And then it's like, oh, good. The scan was clear. All right, they'll, they'll go back in the closet. It's always kind of hanging over you. And I would think that that's a hard thing to live with mentally and everything. It is. And I think that having a mindset that isn't catastrophizing, I just said that wrong. say that word um having having sort of a positive mindset you know that's hard to cultivate when you are kind of in the midst of a a breast cancer journey but you've got choices right and so you know for me I'm I, I do struggle with it right I do have moments of almost like paralysis when I'm sort of you know about to eat something that, you know, is probably a little too high in sodium or a little too much, you know, too much sugar or, you know, it's things that you wonder, like, you know, having this bowl of chips isn't going to like make me have metastasized cancer, but if I were to refrain from the chips, always, like you are always uh, having those, those cogs are turning with a lot of the decisions that you make, whether, you know, it's with nutrition or exercise, but at the end of the day, I have to kind of reconcile with myself that I'm going to live my life in the best way that makes sense for me. And I need to enjoy that life. And I need to not like have that hanging over my head all the time I mean it's still gonna be there it's still gonna be something that you know I I worry about but I have to be able to control how that worry is going to manifest itself and how I'm going to manage manage those thoughts and what my actions are going to be around that um but it's it is it's difficult it's 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 a challenging it's a challenging thing and it you know I think if anything it makes me um sort of understand the 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 purpose how how purposeful I want to live my life and you know focus on the things that matter the most. Absolutely. What would you tell, what a piece of advice, 
if someone's listening to this, who's going through it or has their hysterectomy maybe scheduled or going through after post-surgery, what's one piece of advice you would give someone? I think the advice that I would give is to really take the time to take care of yourself. Um, and you know, particularly with surgery, like give yourself time to heal, give yourself time to kind of, um, sort of digest everything that your body is going through and give it, give it time to rest and heal. You know, anesthetic is, can, can throw a number on you. Um, you know, for anybody, anybody who's had any kind of surgery, you know, I think people are often sort of hankering to kind of get back to normal, particularly with a, like a cancer diagnosis. I think I was very much like, I am not letting this, you know, get in the way of my life. I was sort of very determined that it was not going to, um, curtail the things that I wanted to achieve. I want, you know, if anything, I was like even more sort of like ambitious and, you know, I was not going to let cancer get in the way. Um, but I do think it's important to let your, let your mind and your body process, you know, what is happening without kind of like sinking into a hole of despair, (laughs) but, you know, just kind of, you know, you, your body is going through a lot, your mind is going through a lot and to, you know, take the time to look after yourself. Well, Emily, I just have to say thank you so much for you being so open and vulnerable about this journey you've been on. And again, the fact that you were dealing with all this while maintaining a job and not only maintaining, but like kicking ass at your job is even more impressive And I think you're probably such a role model for not only your kids, but colleagues and definitely listeners as well. So thank you so much. I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? Um, You know, I've been thinking about this a little bit. And I think one that kind of always is kind of a running theme is that comfort is the enemy of progress and I don't know (laughs) I don't know how fitting it is for this conversation but I do feel like you know it's something that I have I come back to when it comes to fear right you you, having a cancer diagnosis is, is an uncomfortable predicament to be in um but this is not gonna this is not comfortable so you have to you have to um rise above that and I just think it's um an appropriate mantra for me both sort of like in my health journey but also kind of in my personal life and in my professional journey too I feel like I'm I I try to step outside of my comfort zone um, in order to become, you know, a better parent, a better spouse, a better colleague. I think that mantra is very fitting for this episode, without a doubt. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I don't think I have like a singular day that I would relive. I do, I do think about 
the days where there are those little moments of like joy or something that's fortuitous I mean it can be something as simple as like you know the 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 the, the gods were shining down on me today I left my car outside and I didn't get a ticket and then you know I needed to run to the bank and there was a parking spot like right out front and you know then I had like a success at work and or like something that unexpected happened that you know kind of like made my day and then like the kids weren't arguing when I got home or like, you know it can just be like these little moments of um of good luck and and surprises and just kind of like things kind of aligning that can make that like the perfect day the little wins in life exactly I love that the final question is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room which song would you choose so I'm not necessarily a fan of this artist but I heard this song um recently when I went I went to see And Juliet with my kids. It's a Broadway musical. And um Katy Perry's Roar um was one of one of the uh songs that was part of the uh part of the musical. And in context, right, I was thinking about this podcast as I was watching it and listening to it, and I'm like, that's the song. <laughs> because I feel like I I I I I imagine that that song was kind of written as sort of like this female empowerment song but I also view it as my my answer to like cancer right like you're not gonna mess around with me like you're not gonna put me down I absolutely love that I think that is such a good theme song for you without a doubt and I'm going to go ahead and add that to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify so listeners can hear your theme song along with everyone else and again Emily thank you so much I'm so excited to stay connected with you and continue talking with you offline um I just you're so extraordinary and everything you've accomplished and I know there's other stuff going on in your life you definitely have not been dealt an easy hand these last few years so it's so impressive to hear how you handled it all your outlook on life um because I think this would knock a lot of people down but similar to your song it it definitely didn't with you so thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me it's been a pleasure chatting with you thank you so much for having me um discuss this with you and I really appreciate it